Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormady, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 47 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome astronomer and author Linda Schweitzer, who earned her PhD in astronomy from the University of California at Berkeley in 1985. During her graduate study, Schweitzer conducted observations at three observatories in Chile on research involving how dark matter behaves in galaxy pairs. An accomplished science communicator, Schweitzer has also served as Assistant Director of External Affairs at the Carnegie Observatories in Pasadena, California. But today, we'll primarily be discussing Schweitzer's new book, Cosmic Odyssey, How Intrepid Astronomers at Palomar Observatory Changed Our View of the Universe. Schweitzer joins us from Pasadena, California. Linda, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Oh, thank you for having me, Bruce. So first off, congratulations on your book. It covers such a large swath of the early 20th century astronomy, mainly through the lens of the Palomar Observatory north of San Diego in the Peninsular Mountain Range. We're not going to be able to cover the whole book in this episode, primarily the first five chapters, but I do want to recommend the book highly for those who want a readable and detailed account of the whole of Palomar Observatory's history. Thank uh, you. In uh, 2007, you were awarded the first of two grants from the Rockefeller Foundation to write Cosmic Odyssey, and then you subsequently had visitor status at Caltech with access to Palomar and to a large pool of resident and visiting scientists. You really got to know the observatory in a, in a very personal way? Yes. Uh, I was astronomer, explorer, observer, photographer, participant, writer all at once. Um, having worked in Chile and Washington, D.C. and Pasadena, California, and having observed at seven observatories, I got to know a lot of astronomers, as you can imagine, uh, some of whom had made fundamental discoveries at Palomar and elsewhere, and that gave me insight into how I could interview them to build a backstory. Um, so these experiences uh, gelled my approach to writing Cosmic Odyssey. I wanted to write the insider's view of how science is done behind the scenes, uh, behind the final announcement of a discovery and the publicity that goes with it. So it wasn't just the science per se that I was aiming at, but how it came to be, how easy or difficult or unexpected it had been made, been to make the discoveries. So I thought this would be a real contribution to the public's understanding of how research is done. Before we get to the story of Palomar itself, let's talk a bit about the societal culture at the turn of the 20th century that presaged both the building of the 100-inch Hooker telescope on, Cal- on, on California's Mount Wilson, a bit further north up the coast, And you write that George Ellery Hale, born in Chicago, Illinois, in 1868, was an astrophysicist who masterminded the design and construction of four consecutive world's largest telescopes, all dedicated between 1897 and 1948. Hale's specialty was solar astrophysics, and the principle that appeared to be guiding him was his desire to solve the puzzle of star formation and evolution. So from his own research, first at Yerkes, And then with the Solar Telescope on Mount Wilson, he realized that bigger instruments and higher resolution were all worth pursuing. So he was keen to build not only an uh, astrophysical approach to doing science, but also to build bigger, better telescopes and spectrographs uh, for that purpose. Uh, He also realized that the sun is but one star, and we should know a lot about all the other stars. So he wanted to know how stellar evolution works, and he realized that to find an answer, he needed more light from a bigger telescope. And he also had insight uh, of an advanced solar physicist to appreciate that other astronomers would need big telescopes to observe the stars at night, and that was also a driver. For example, when Edwin Hubble proved the nature of extragalactic cephades in the Andromeda galaxy, it immediately became clear that astronomers needed to observe more galaxies and the 100-inch just couldn't cut it. So it made Hale dream of a larger telescope, focused on the science, though, not just to build a larger telescope. 
So he wrote an article in Harper's Magazine that made a, a very strong science case for a larger telescope. And he was, uh, it's kind of a funny story because he was secretly appealing to Wycliffe Rose, who was the head of the Rockefeller Foundation's education board and a scientist himself. So it was not just about engineering, but the driver was science and the desire to learn about stellar evolution, as I said. And in fact, this was the first major result from the 200-inch telescope, that plus doubling the cosmological distance scale. So can you give us a parenthetical definition of, of what a Cepheid actually is? The most famous example is probably Polaris, which is the North Star. So a Cepheid variable is a pulsating star. It pulsates in brightness so that the period of its pulsation depends on its intrinsic luminosity. So if you, if you see one of these stars and you measure its period, you immediately know how far away it is because you know its intrinsic luminosity. Through that, that's how astronomers have enabled the cosmological distance ladder to be expanded outward. Yes, yes. Extremely valuable um, measurements of distance. So when I was researching my own book, Distant Wanderers, A Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, back in July of 99, I was able to visit the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope, which at the time was still under construction. And the commissioning scientist, I remember, who had been showing me around, told me that even though the VLT was long from being finished, uh, he and colleagues were already dreaming up their next project, which is now known as ESO's Extremely Large Telescope. So in a way, the whole effort was about the process of construction and the process as much as it was about, about time behind the telescope. It's interesting that what you said just now about Hale, because uh, George Ellery Hale was apparently not only... He, he was very driven by wanting to understand as I understand it, the evolution of, of, of stars. But he, he was also very driven by instrumentation and the next big telescope. Oh, he was. Um, although it was well known that Hale was dreaming of a larger telescope, even before the 100-inch hooker was finished, I mean, this is a well-known story, he was definitely a born and bred scientist, and he was keen to explore the universe with... But he, he realized that to do that, you need better and better tools. Each telescope is unique in design. Um, its own test case, it's its own test case that we learn from. So a long lead time is required for designing, funding, and constructing telescopes and instruments. So entrepreneurs must think far ahead. And this is perhaps what was happening in ESO too. It can take decades to design, fund, plan, construct uh, a large telescope, complex telescope, and you, you have to be thinking of that as you're building the one that you're building. And the interesting thing about, you mentioned what was going on in the ESO, the, initially they were even more ambitious because they had, had thought about uh, building a 100-meter telescope, and yes. <laughs> the, which was actually called the Overwhelmingly Large Telescope, or OWL, and they uh -huh. were thinking about maybe even putting it on the uh, Mediterranean coast in Morocco, and they, and then they decided against that, and then they, they realized that they very quickly that 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 the diameter had to be scaled back. And I think, if memory serves, now I think the diameter of the extremely large telescope, which is scheduled to go online, I believe, in 2024, uh, uh, or at least by the end of the decade. <laughs> Who knows with COVID what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, it, it's something like 39 meters, so. 40 meters high. Yeah, it's, it's a bit bigger than what Hale was looking at. And um, Hale looked at, at a bigger picture. Um, it became clear to him that the relatively new reflecting telescopes had a big advantage over the lens telescopes because they had faster focal ratios, which is the ratio of the focal length to the mirror diameter, meaning that they concentrate light on a smaller area. So you, you have to expose um, less time. Um, reflectors could also be built bigger than refractors. That's why he left uh, Yerkes. Um, the 40-inch refractor seemed to be a, a maximum size because the glass gets so heavy that it deforms from its own weight and destroys the optical alignment. And so you write that the, the first telescope that he built was that 40-inch refractor erected at Yerkes Observatory on the plains of Wisconsin. Two concepts turned Hale off to Yerkes, bad weather and poor seeing. So Hale needed to see the stars, and he was interested in the astrophysics of stellar evolution, 
and he found a better place to do that in the mountains of Southern California. Yerkes continued to successfully measure radio velocities of thousands of stars, but it couldn't see what what Hale needed to see. So did he kind of leave Yerkes in the lurch, or did they understand why he went west? Well, it wasn't a hasty decision, uh, and, and it was very well-reasoned. Um, the observatory just didn't serve his needs, and you know the three things that killing it were the poor weather, mediocre seeing, and very slow focal ratio, which meant that the exposures were very long, and if he wanted to see any faint features, they were unlikely to show up. The observatory also suffered from ground fog being near a lake. So for anything beyond the stars, such as galaxies or nebulae with low surface brightness, the reflector was just much better. He saw this already in exquisite photographs of galaxies that were being taken at the Lick 36-inch reflector. So although he was not interested in galaxies, he did realize that nebulae and galaxies were exciting stuff, and he wanted to build a telescope that could see everything, you know, not be restricted to just measuring doing spectroscopy of stars, and that's it. But when he first came to California, he actually went to Northern California and, and the Lick Observatory, and that's kind of where, he, you're right, that's kind of where he made the comparison. So this all boils down to how do you decide where to put an observatory? You want to observe objects that are incredibly faint, so you have to have clear nights. That means low humidity, uh, found mostly on coastal mountaintops, Lick is fine, uh, good seeing, uh, low light pollution, and accessibility for infrastructure improvements. So as far as I know, uh, Lick wasn't at all interested. Uh, also, San Francisco, San Francisco had fires, a horrible earthquake, and it was just clear that Southern California had better climate than Northern California. So he first built the solar tower on Mount Wilson, and then he decided to build the reflector, and that's the 60-inch reflector. And then after that, he built the 100-inch reflector. And even as that was finished, as it was just being finished and before, he was already dreaming of the 200-inch because he wanted to see even further. Why did he decide on Palomar instead of Mount Wilson for the 200-inch? Well, since uh, the, the city lights of Los Angeles Basin, there was a lot of growth in that area, and the light was just beginning to illuminate this, the night sky over Mount Wilson. So Caltech had to look elsewhere to place the 200-inch, and they found this very suitable mountain near San Diego. Just uh, It was still just a three-hour drive from the Caltech campus, so it was not as accessible, but um, they could still develop instrumentation and go back and forth. So they could see that the Los Angeles Basin was going to suffer from light pollution even then? Yes, you noted at the time that the Rockefellers found the Rockefeller Foundation gave six million dollars to build a project, which was the largest budget ever provided for a scientific project. Yes, um, and Hale was the funny story is that Hale was very good at hobnobbing with the wealthy, and he was also good at writing provocative articles. So, um, you know, what mysteries could be solved and fantastic objects could be discovered with a larger telescope. So he wrote an article um, aimed at getting the attention of someone from the Rockefeller Foundation, um, their education board, which was run by uh, Wycliffe Rose, who was also an intellectual giant, um, interested in science and, and happened to be looking for brains to fund. Um, so Hale sent a, a preview of that article to Rose, and that got everything started. It got the funding, and they had the funding within a very short time for, for building the 200-inch. And by what what year did he actually have the $6 million in funding for the 200-inch uh, uh, telescope? 1928. It was like four months after the article. It was just ridiculously fast. That's great. We dream of that today, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> if only. But at and, and that time, he you write that he, he thought he was going to be able to finish it in six years. Oh yes, <laughs> this is this is the bane of everyone who plans telescopes. Um, that the project took three times longer to complete. Uh, it took twenty years. Of course, there was a, a war intervening that was part of it. He had a very hard time over that period. Uh, he was sixty years old before he even conceived of the sixty of the two hundred inch telescope. Um, so he he just suffered from complete mental exhaustion. They started building the telescope, but by 1936, he was too ill to lead the project. Did he 
literally work himself to death. I mean, he was kind of the classic example of a workaholic. Exactly. He was a prototype of a workaholic. (laughs) And um, he he certainly worked himself to mental exhaustion. So you write that the uh, workers struggled to actually cast the 200, the 20 tons of Pyrex, a borosilicate glass with low thermal expansion. And in your book, I I noticed that you actually took a picture, which is in the book, of of a piece of of borosilicate glass. Well, the chunks were uh, not that large, actually. This chunk was probably about six or seven inches maximum maximum dimension. Uh-huh. Um, and, and when I worked at Carnegie Observatories, I designed a book uh, for them. I wrote and designed a book for them. Um, and I contacted uh, Roger Angel, who was head of the Mir Lab in Arizona, and I said, can you send me some chunks of glass that you use, borosilicate glass, because I want to photograph it, you know, to put on the cover. Uh-huh. And he sent me a, a whole box of these things, uh, just absolutely gorgeous. They're all over my house now, decorating the house, um, but just beautiful pieces of glass. And they, are, they originally come from Japan? Oh, God, I can't answer that. I think they do. I'm pretty sure that's correct. You write that, uh, anyway, that the workers struggled to cast 20 tons of this Pyrex, borosilicate glass, which had a very low thermal expansion into a nearly 17-foot diameter disc at Corning Glassworks in upstate New York. And then uh, by 1936, millions of people swarmed railways and roads to watch the fragile disc cross the country through tunnels and over bridges from, uh, from Corning to Caltech's optical shop. If memory serves me, my own dad, my late uh, father, mentioned this to me, that he remembered hearing about it. he didn't actually see it but he he remembered as a as a kid this great disc that was crossing the country by rail so the challenges of successfully pouring the world's largest pyrex pyrex disc uh, were a newsworthy item since the first pouring failed and the second one almost flooded out so the fact that the disc then had to be perilously transported across the country and it barely made it barely squeaked through tunnels uh that made it a big public show because the public could watch it. Uh, children were let out of school to see this precious piece of glass travel by. Uh, some worried that a sharpshooter would take aim at the mirror so it was heavily protected during its journey. Why in the world would someone want to sabotage the mirror? Um, that's a question you could ask today, right? <laughs> <laughs> we have lots of shooters today. Why do, why do people want to do that? It's, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. It's just like to be to go down in history as the person who destroyed this mirror. So that I mean, was I don't know. So you're saying that actually was a concern of hail and it was a concern. Yeah, it was there was metal around this thing. There was a lot of layers uh, to protect gosh. it. I didn't realize that. Workers at uh, at General Electric Corporation in Westinghouse were tasked with cutting, welding, and bolting 500 tons of unwieldy metal in the structures capable of supporting, protecting, and pointing the mirror with exquisite accuracy. So when you were actually doing the research on this aspect of the book, were you yourself surprised at the technological challenges of this 200-inch telescope? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, The pouring of the glass, if you've seen movies uh, of the pouring of the glass, is just spectacular. You just fear for those people's lives. Um, as they have these big scoops of molten glass that they poured into a mold. They do it very differently today, of course, but this was scary. So it was much, um, it was much more risky and much more dangerous back Oh, then. incredibly, yes, yes. You know, they had wooden structures that they were relying on, and then, of course, the hot molten glass, who wants to be around that? So, but, but that they could build a telescope that is that precise and moving. You can take your little finger and you can push on the telescope and it will move. I did it once. <laughs> You know, if it if it's um, if the gears aren't latched, um, you can just push on it and it will move on its own. It's just incredibly well balanced. So you write that the casting of the big eyes it was dubbed the big eye. That's the other thing. Uh, do you do you recall how that came about? We think that came from the press. Yeah, we think that's a, a press name. And and I've been in the um, in the data room at the two hundred inch, and someone will pick up the phone and say big eye. Not everybody does anymore, but oh, there's still right? the old timers who do that. Oh wow! It was dedicated as the 200-inch Hale Telescope on June 3rd, 1948. The telescope's pedestal was anchored 25 feet deep in solid granite at the mountain's 5,600-foot summit. If you if you look at old photos and newsreels and newspaper and, and magazine coverage of the Hale telescopes, 
construction and astronomers such as Hale and Hubble and Greenstein riding up to the prime focus cage to reach even further into the universe, it's really impressive. There were articles on their personal lives, um, very romanticized. And it's, it's, it's a lot similar. It's very much similar to recent news coverage uh, that you see of, of discoveries made today. And so what was a prime focus cage? A cage in which back at that time before they had uh, uh, CCDs, the uh, digital images, astronomer would actually ride, would ride with the telescope as, as it is actually pointing Oh, yes, yes. It's um, a little tube, a cylinder at the very top of the structure that supports the mirror and um, which um, allows the telescope to move. Um, and it's about six feet in diameter. And there's, it's just crammed with a lot of instruments. There's an instrument pedestal in the center of it. And there's a metal chair that the astronomer sits on. No padding or anything. And this is like all night temperature can get down to whatever below zero. They had photographic plates at the beginning. Uh, everything was photographic. And they would um, sit there sometimes more than one night trained on one galaxy to get an image. So they would, you know, close the shutter at night and come back the next night and open the shutter and continue the exposure because there were no CCDs, of course. But it was a, it was a difficult place to be that is, physically, it was uncomfortable. It was cold. Um, no bathroom up there, of course. Uh, you had to bring your own food. Um, people absolutely loved it, and they wished they could go back in there even 30 years later. It was just, you're, you're all alone. You're 100 feet above the ground. Um, you turn your head, and you see the sky behind you. And it's very silent, except for the sounds of the telescope. It's just a very, uh, it was described as romantic by several astronomers and a romantic experience. Of course, today that's all done by computer in a control room. Um, and a, yes. And the yeah. Palomar has been updated several times. Yeah, everything's on big monitors and you don't really touch anything. So the Palomar 18 inch Schmidt camera was dedicated in 1936, which presaged the uh, which was before the 1948 dedication of the 200-inch Hale. It was a survey telescope, and the Swiss-American physicist uh, Fritz Zwicky was his master. So actually, there were two survey telescopes. One was 18-inch, yes. which was the one that Fritz Zwicky used, and then there was a larger one, the 48-inch uh, Smith telescope, that spent the first seven years photographing 900 square fields surveying hundreds of millions of never-before-seen objects which showed up as individual and clustered stars and galaxies, nebulae, comets, and asteroids, you write, mapping three-quarters of the entire sky. Was this seen as groundbreaking at the time? Absolutely. Uh, the Schmidt design was, was groundbreaking. Uh, for the first time in history, wide-angle images that were sharp and free of distortions out to the very edge of the field could be produced. We're blind without such survey telescopes today. Um, each plate taken by the 48-inch Schmidt covered 6.4 degrees. And the 200-inch field of view is only is less than half a degree. Uh, remember that the apparent size of the moon is 30 arc minutes. So it's half a degree. So it's just this little tiny straw that's looking around all over the universe. So if you don't have the Schmidt with its wide field of view, you're kind of blind. You just have to grope all over the, the sky to find something of interest. It's almost analogous to uh, using the Internet before the days of Google uh, because you, you, really <laughs> yes. had, you, really had to, exactly. you really had to have your URL. Otherwise, you were just in, in the dark. And, yeah, and then Google just uh, flopping around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not only that, but the, the Schmidt photographed and identified sources that were discovered in wavelengths other than visual. So it looked at it could identify radio sources, quasars, gamma ray sources, solar system rubble and more. Zwicky used these to compile catalogs of 40,000 galaxies and 10,000 clusters of galaxies. I mean, just astounding what, what was done with these telescopes. Because they were fast, what's called fast focal ratio, they could photograph very quickly, and they were um, sharp all the way to the edge. Zwicky, for the first time, was able to see these wisps of luminous material that stretched like, like taffy 
around in between galaxies and he saw these weird galaxies, some, some of which looked like rings in the sky. He saw streamers, um, so all sorts of interesting things. And people didn't believe him at the beginning because they had never seen them. These were stars and gas being pulled out of galaxies through um, gravitational tides. So you have two galaxies that get a little bit too close to, to each other. And sometimes they go into orbit and sometimes merge into one galaxy. But as they do this, um, they're, they're gravitational tides that pulls out long structures. You're right that Zwicky was actually looking for supernovae, which at the time were very poorly understood. However, you write that he concentrated on finding exploding stars outside of our own galaxy by focusing on clusters of galaxies instead of just one individual galaxy. And he also superposed the current night's photographic exposures on the previous night's image on the same part of the sky. You write that that surveys using such methodology was completely novel at the time, but you note that it inaugurated a tradition of periodically surveying sky for supernovae with Schmidt cameras, which continues to this day. Supernovae had been found by others before, but 10 or 11 were known by chance discovery, but nobody had systematically searched for them. They weren't considered very important, for one thing. Um, so Spicky's legacy was taking photographs once a month to, to look for these supernovae and then comparing, uh, he took them once a month. So we'd compare the previous month's photograph with the present month's photograph and look for changes, any changes in points of light, which could indicate a supernova. So uh, the, the amazing thing is with, with Zwicky is that um, although supernovae had been discovered in Andromeda in, say, 1885, there were very few studies of supernova until the Schmidt cameras. Uh, for a long time, Zwicky was a record holder of supernova discoveries by, I think he found 120. <laughs> and now there are soon to be more than 10,000 discovered per year. That's amazing. Yeah, the, there's uh, the Pal Palomar Transient Factory and more recently the Zwicky Transient Facility have been surveying the sky for supernovae and other objects using the Schmidt telescope, using that same uh, famous 48-inch Schmidt telescope. And they're looking for anything in the sky that changes brightness or location. So they're following that same tradition using Zwicky's method of comparing older images with newer images and looking for any changes in position or brightness. And what's interesting is that the astronomical science has changed over time because, as you just mentioned, at that time, supernovae were not even considered that interesting. And now, good gosh, I mean, I'd argue what <laughs> half the observing time at any major telescope is probably devoted to characterizing supernovae. In Forbes, I write to, that astronomer Edwin Hubble usually gets credit for confirmation that our cosmo, cosmos is, in fact, expanding. He, but he proved that there is a direct relationship between the recessional speeds of distant galaxies and their distances from Earth. But then in the late 1950s, Alan Sandage, uh, who you were able to interview for this book before his passing, as you told me in the pre-interview, who was one of Hubble's protégés, used observations with the Palomar-Hale telescope to note that the universe is expanding away from us in an isotropic fashion, in other words, equally in all directions. And this set the stage for contemporary cosmology. Can you recount your interview for this book with Sandage, and I assume you guys covered this point? We covered everything, absolutely everything <laughs> over so many interviews. Um, <laughs> Sandage was a student of Edwin Hubble's, and his, but his thesis advisor was Walter Botta. So he kind, of, he kind of stood both in cosmology and in stellar evolution, although he told me that stellar evolution was closest to his heart. He loved Botta, and he thought Hubble had a difficult personality. So he earned his living for his studies by working for Hubble. He, was a, he did obs observations, took observations for Hubble. Uh, and he was the only graduate student to have access to the 200-inch telescope because of that. So the, the notion that the expansion of the universe is the same in all directions was already well known through Hubble. Hubble had proposed various tests, and Sandage continued to develop Hubble's projects. But then the whole load of, of Hubble's cosmology program fell on Sandage's shoulders when he died in 1953. And Sandage was hired with the explicit notion that he would carry on Hubble's program. Uh, he was hired at Santa Barbara Street at Hale Observatories. 
Um, so the homology of the expansion was already known by Hubble. What was not yet known was how smooth or noisy uh, that cosmic expansion is. That's also known as the, the Hubble flow. And that's what Sandage worked on. So he found that it is not expanding at different rates in different directions, like an explosion would, um, like in a supernova remnant, but it's very smooth. And that was a big deal. Right. And that was before uh, the concept of inflation had been put forth. At the time, you write that most astronomers believe that heavy elements formed in the Big Bang and that the universe had a homogeneous chemical composition. And that also changed over the next decade as a seemingly unrelated clutch of observational, theoretical, and experimental insights convinced most astronomers, you write, that stars not only create chemical elements, but also distribute them on a cosmic scale. So they had no clues that, that stars formed heavy elements inside their interiors at that time before, prior to this? Well, at first they had no evidence for how heavy elements, heavy chemical elements formed. So they just assumed that they were formed in the Big Bang creation of the universe. Um, by the way, in astronomer's parlance, a uh, heavy element refers to elements heavier than hydrogen and helium uh, in the periodic table of elements. Then in 1952, a retired astronomer at Palomar named Paul Merrill identified the element technetium in old red giant stars. So the significance of this discovery is that technetium is radioactive. So it has a short decay time. So if that element had been formed in the Big Bang, as everyone was assuming, it would have decayed long before the red giant had even formed. So this was the first strong clue that most chemical elements are synthesized not in the Big Bang, but in stars. And further, evidence was accumulating at Palomar that chemically enriched material streams out of stars through storms and flares and winds. So not only exploding stars, but also aging stars are significant sources of chemical enrichment, you know, enriching the gas between stars in our galaxy. And so it, it just completely overturned this idea that everything came out of the Big Bang. And, and enriching the interstellar medium. And, and we are the product of a second or third generation star because we have an unusually an, an amount of iron in our, in our own sun. Can we find technetium on Earth, or is it only visible in these distant stars? I believe it can only be made on Earth. It doesn't exist naturally. It has a very short uh, decay time. It is formed inside of stars, but not on Earth. This brings us to one of the most fascinating aspects of your book, in my opinion. And You write that a newly classified hydrogen bomb test had taken place in November 1952 on the Bikini Atoll in the Pacific. And during the explosion, the bombardment of uranium by an instantaneous flux of neutrons synthesized Californium-254. What about this bomb test enabled astronomers to conclude that something similar must be happening in Type 1 supernova? Well, astronomers were aware that forming ev elements heavier than iron requires an extremely high input of energy. So they studied the spectra of debris from the hydrogen bomb blast on the Bikini Atoll to get some information. Um, the rate of the exponential decline of the radiation indicated that radioactive elements were decaying. And a byproduct was identified as California 254. Serendipitously, one of the astronomers happened to recall um, a supernova that was discovered in 1937 and it had shown a similar exponential decay in light that the bomb decay time had shown. Then the team put things together um, that supernovae are source of the extremely high densities of neutrons that enable the buildup of heavy elements beyond iron. And the story continues that Californium was not directly detected, it turns out, in the spectra of supernova, even though they thought they had the right element. Um, so the source of the neutrinos of the neutrons remained hotly debated for more than half a century. And just in the last few years, spectra taken of the radioactive decay of a merging pair of neutron stars provided evidence that they are that they are the source of the many heavy elements, including gold and platinum. So it's an enormously complex subject. 
But the basic idea is that no matter the type of supernova, they all produce high densities and neutron captures that lead to the buildup of heavier and heavier elements. Um, there are currently eight categories of different types of supernovae, and they all lead to extraordinarily dense environments where neutron capture occurs and leads to the formation of radioactive isotopes. So just to be clear, it is true that, that, that the hydrogen bomb tests enabled them to make the link to the formation of these extraordinarily heavy metals, massive stellar interiors? Yes, 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 that was the link. Okay, great. Even though it wasn't completely correct, it was. It, it gave them the idea, and then it was refined later uh, when we discovered a pair of neutron merging pair of, of neutron stars uh, that that refined what they had seen, and it was no longer California two fifty four, but something else. But that's that's a mi relatively minor point okay. for our story. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> In late nineteen fifty, you write that German astronomer Walter Bade journeyed to Palomar to take the first photographs, his first photographs of the Andromeda galaxy, our nearest grand spiral neighbor with a 200-inch telescope. It was interesting to me that, that his photographic plates were actually stored in a refrigerator inside the dome because I assume to preserve the emulsions which were so sensitive to blue light. Yes. He was a stickler, apparently, <laughs> apparently for the best, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to put it mildly, for the best uh, observing conditions. It said that he would rather let the world's largest telescope idle for an entire night than observe fuzzy or twinkling stars. I, I just kind of scratched my head because I don't think that kind of attitude would be tolerated today. Well, for one thing, there weren't, there weren't the huge throngs <laughs> of astronomers trying to get time on that telescope, you know, that was limited to a, a few astronomers. So that, that was one thing. Um, but there are still times when a telescope is idle. Um, we can't mitigate cirrus clouds or a, a dirty atmosphere or excess humidity in the air. So um, there are times when the mirror just hasn't reached equilibrium with the atmosphere and the images can be extended and blurred. Uh, that happened once when I was up on Palomar. We closed down and we put a fan on the mirror, came back in a couple of hours, and, um, and it had cooled a bit and the images had improved. And sometimes the moon rises and, and it blots out the faint universe. So if your program deals with faint objects, then you, know, you can't continue really. Um, although if you're wise, like um, for example, I write about Sandage, uh, Ellen Sandage and uh, Chip Arp, you have a box of coordinates for brighter objects, usually stars, um, that you can, you know, a secondary program uh, that didn't require those best of conditions, and you would at least get something done. So subsequently, Walter Body questioned Edwin Hubble's distance to the uh, relatively nearby Andromeda galaxy and concluded that it was twice as far as Hubble had determined. And then by 1952, Bada announced that his findings at the General Assembly of the International Astronomical Union in Rome. The story was picked up by popular magazines and newspapers and stirred the public's imagination. Why, why was this important? Well, knowing distances in the universe outside the Milky Way is of crucial importance for several reasons. So the first is doubling the distance to any galaxy out there means that the galaxy is actually intrinsically four times more luminous than we thought it was before. So this changes the comparison of that galaxy with our Milky Way. Um, for any intercomparison of objects in the Milky Way with those outside of the Milky Way, be it entire galaxies or properties of their nucleus or whatever, having the right distance is absolutely crucial. And second, ever since Hubble, We've been measuring velocities of galaxies and finding that they were university, universally flying away. So the further from us, the faster. So the constant that relates a galaxy's velocity to its distance is called the Hubble constant. And it's of crucial importance for the history of the universe um, because its inverse, one over the Hubble constant, one over H, is a measure of the age of the universe. So doubling the distance scale made the Hubble constant half as large, which then doubled the age of the universe, making it comfortably older than the then current estimate of the geological age of Earth. That's supposedly one of the reasons why they built the 200-inch telescope, Sandage told me, was because Hubble's relation gave an age for the universe that was younger 
than the rocks that were on Earth. So that was that was a bit of a problem. And at that time, if memory serves me from your book, the oldest rocks on Earth were only thought to be 1.8 billion years old. And today, obviously, we have zircons. Uh, I just interviewed a geologist, Harvard geologist, last week, uh, who told me that the that the inclusions in the oldest zircons on Earth point back to 4.38 billion years ago. And the first 600 wow. million years of Earth's history is kind of like the Dark Ages. We don't have evidence for the rocks, rocks that can be dated back that that long. But so you're saying that uh, this cosmological effort helped us better understand the age of, of of how Earth's age actually fits in with the cosmological picture. It's the same kind of quandary we had what 20, 20 or twenty five years ago with the uh, the the stars were older than the universe at that at, at one point. Yes, yes, exactly, yes. Okay, and, and, now, and that's and, not allowed. And now, that's not allowed. And Can't now, do that. And now we've corrected that because the two best uh, ages for the universe are thirteen point seven and thirteen point eight billion yes. years. Okay. What about the formation of the Milky Way? Because uh, Palomar also helped us much better understand how the Milky Way could have formed. You mentioned that Alan Sandage speculated in a model that some 10 billion years ago, a huge protogalactic gas cloud, 10 times the current diameter of the Milky Way galaxy, galaxy decoupled from the universal expansion and began to collapse under its own gravity. And the entire collapse lasted around 200 million years, which is relatively brief on a cosmological time scale. It was long enough for many generations of massive stars each living for only five to ten million years to enrich the infalling gas with heavy elements. Palomar contributed in a significant way to our view of how the Milky Way formed. So models of stellar evolution gave us an approximate age of our galaxy, uh, and then observations of the velocities and compositions of the stars in the solar neighborhood led to the first theory of how, how our galaxy formed, which was the Sandage, uh, Egan, Linden, Bell, and Sandage. Uh, theory, uh, uh, which is a huge rotating cloud of gas rapidly collapsed into a disk, forming stars and clusters of stars along the way. Each uh, dying generation of stars enriched the interstellar medium so that younger stars have a richer composition than the first generations of stars. And this picture held through the 1960s. And then a major wrench was thrown into that model when giant stars could be observed much further out into the galaxy. And this caused some of the, the correlations that, that, these, uh, that Egan, Linden, Bell, and Sandage had claimed to, to just fall apart. Um, it seemed that there may have been a collapse of the central part of the galaxy. That might have been more or less correct. But the outer parts of the galaxy were instead formed by surrounding dwarf companion galaxies. These are little galaxies that were orbiting the Milky Way, and they were captured by the gravity and fell toward the Milky Way to a, a mashup of fragments. So today, some of the brightest so-called globular clusters themselves are thought to be instead the nuclei of some of these little dwarf galaxies that are being dissolved into the Milky Way. Um, this was a complete paradigm shift in our understanding of how the Milky Way formed. The mashup view was not accepted by the establishment at first, but today we talk of a, a spaghetti structure of the halo where dwarf galaxies are tightly stretched out as they fall into our galaxy. And so you mentioned Egan and Lyndon Bell. We didn't mention these two astronomers. Can you tell us, tell listeners who they were? Yeah, Olin Egan um, was a, a stellar spectroscopist um, who was always at the telescope. He absolutely loved to observe. Um, and he created catalogs of radial velocities and positions of stars um, in our galaxy and in the halo uh, that were used in this really wonderful model of how the, the galaxy formed. Um, Lyndon Bell was a theoretician from who was on, on visiting, who had actually had a postdoc, I think, had a fellowship um, at Caltech and Santa Barbara Street when uh, this whole theory, the Egan, Lyndon, Bell, and Sandage theory was being uh, created and he did a lot of the uh, theoretical modeling for them because observers often can't do the modeling. So they were lucky he was around and he was able to calculate orbits of these stars 
um, in the galaxy based on uh, Egan's catalogs of their velocities and directions of motion, um, he could calculate orbits and this helped them create this model of how the, how the galaxy formed. And you mentioned radial velocity and that's simply how an object is moving towards or away from us along our line of along sight. Along the line of sight. Yeah. Yep. And uh, Santa Barbara Street, is that the office of, of the telescope? What is Santa Barbara Street? That is the office of the Mount Wilson Observatory. So oh. it, it's located on Santa Barbara Street in Pasadena, just below Mount Wilson. And that's where all the astronomers work, you know, when they're not at the telescope. It's about two miles north of the Caltech campus. And that's where they also, that's where the Palomar astronomers also work when they're not at the telescope? Yes. So both as an astronomer and as a historian of science, what puzzles you most about how we humans have approached our celestial sphere? So we're much better off than when Palomar came online, partly because we jumped from photographic plates, which had a 1% photon efficiency, to charge-coupled devices, uh, which are on all cell phones, which have nearly 100 times sense, 100% sensitivity, not quite, but they're 100 times more sensitive. Going to CCDs allows us to see objects 10 times further away or fainter in the same amount of time as we were looking with a, a, or exposing a photographic plate. But much more than this, um, early in the 20th century, most astronomical observations were conducted within a, a single octave of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, the visual, which is like 3,500 angstroms to 7,000 angstroms, kind of what we, what we see, more or less, with our eyes. So with the addition, uh, during, during uh, Palomar's, when Palomar just came on, online, it was just the time when radio astronomy was developing. So with the addition of radio and then infrared detectors and later X-ray and gamma ray satellite observatories, the range and wavelength that's accessible to astronomers in the 21st century has increased by more than a quintillion. That's 10 with 18 zeros after it. So the wavelengths currently available to astronomers range from waves shorter than the diameter of a proton to waves the size of continents. So in addition to the enormous expansion of wavelength, which has uncovered the violent universe, we've added to that the non-electric, non-electromagnetic messengers like cosmic rays, neutrinos, and gravitational waves. So things have drastically changed and quite a bit improved from the lone observer exposing a single photographic plate for two to three nights. We've come to state-of-the-art instruments, sophisticated suites of custom software stored on multiple computers and electronic racks. We have powerful adaptive optic systems with thousands of actuators deforming a mirror thousands of times per second that counters atmospheric blurring. We have spectrographs that pack tens of thousands of miniature spectra into each and every exposure rather than the astronomers sitting at the telescope for one or two nights to get a single exposure. And, of course, observing teams now consist of astrophysicists along with instrument specialists, technicians, computer software experts, all kinds of people helping out. So paint a picture of what a Palomar is like on a clear night. The 200-inch data room would be filled with monitors and laptops and thermoses and night lunches, flashlights, printed schedules, jackets, <laughs> and packed with a night assistant the principal investigator, graduate students, engineers, instrument designers, and computer experts. Generally, the engineers outnumber the astronomers, and occasionally a pet dog serves as a mascot. <laughs> so the hum, of, <laughs> the hum of metal surfaces moving across one another pierces this very quiet environment. In the dome, if you go out of the data room and into the darkened dome where obser observations are taking place, you hear the soft whirring of the tracking, the, maybe the screeching of the dome rotating, the low hum of computer racks, uh, small piercing red lights come out of the darkness, and everything smells a bit oily. And then below the dome, uh, if you look down over the hill, you often see a marine layer that uh, creeps up the mountain and, and then it stops just below the domes. Uh, and you feel like you're kind of insulated on Astronomy Island, but it's generally very quiet. You'll just hear the wind 
in the trees. And otherwise, it's very quiet and just absolutely stunning. Finally, when you yourself look up at a clear night sky, (laughs) what goes through your head? So above all else, I remain amazed that through technological process, through our inquisitive minds, we figured out that whereas the human naked eye sees at most, say, four to 5,000 stars at any time above their head, plus the sun, the moon, and a few planets, we now know that we live in one of the billions of galaxies of which there of which many are comparable to ours that our galaxy has of the order of 200 billion stars and many of these stars have planets around them just like our sun has planets around it um, so it makes me wonder how many among those billions and billions of planets harbor life like ours on earth or more succinctly <laughs> Are we the only monkeys in the universe? <laughs> yeah. That's a good ending, right? That's, that's a, that's a $64,000 question. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it seems to come up every episode. There we go. Linda, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment and learn more? Um, there, there's contact information on my website, which is uh, lindaschweitzer.com. And my Twitter handle is Linda Schweitzer 8, and I'll soon be on Facebook. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Linda Schweitzer, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of this important epoch in astronomical history. It was my pleasure. Thank you again for asking me. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>